0: Hello and welcome to A Life in Music with Russell Scott. This podcast is dedicated to all you performers out there who want to be the very best you can be. Whether you're just starting out, a budding professional, just love performing, or have been professionally working in the industry for years, this podcast will help you be the very best. Thank you for joining us today and don't forget you can check out the website alifeinmusic.com. Now, without further ado, please welcome the man himself, with over 35 years professional performance experience, 100,000 record sales behind him, and a career spanning the worlds of classical music and musical theatre, on film, on television, on radio and on stage. This is A Life in Music with Russell Scott. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of A Life in Music with Russell Scott. I've been really overwhelmed in recent weeks by the amount of people listening to this podcast and I can't thank you enough for supporting it and coming back time and time again to listen to the podcasts which are featuring some amazing special guests over the last few weeks and we've got a lot more to come. Don't forget, check out the website at www.alifeinmusic.com for the best advice, tips and tricks from behind the scenes of a producer and a musical director and to support and care for our performers out there, the people that are dedicated to being the very best they can be. Now on today's show we've got a very special guest and this guy is somebody I've known for a very long time. I've worked with him over the years and just a few years back he had the incredible opportunity of joining the amazing a cappella group, The King Singers. His name is Chris Gabitas and he's my special guest for today and I'm talking to him from his hotel room in Italy.
1: Well, hello Chris, I, I hear you're in Italy at the moment. That's right. Hi there, Russell. I'm off with the King Singers for a couple of days in central Italy uh, following our season opening concert for the 16-17 season, which was back in Kent. Amazing. Great.
0: That sounds sounds fantastic. Tell us a little bit about, about you uh, and how you kind of got involved
1: with the King Singers. When I was quite young, my parents would often play King Singers cassettes as they were back then in the car as we went around England, visiting family and friends. And I started singing, I suppose, when I was about four or five years old. It wasn't something that had really been in the family before, but luckily my parents decided that it was worth exploring. So I ended up being a a boy chorister in Rochester Cathedral in Kent. And really it all sprang from there. I I never thought that I'd end up being in the King's Singers myself, but I think it was something that stayed with me because I loved hearing those harmonies, even if I couldn't really describe why when I was a child. Did you, did you have a classical music background? I did initially, yeah. I mean, my my parents were quite big fans of classical music, I suppose, and they didn't really keep up with much of the pop of the day. So my exposure as a child was whatever my parents used to listen to. So it was mostly classical music and quite a lot of choral music because they, they had lived over in Hereford for years and loved the Three Choirs Festival and the connection with Elgar and with those wonderful... English cow pack composers you might call them like Vaughan Williams and Finzi and Bax and um, you know uh, the rest of of that sort of mob and so I grew up with this very English pastoral um, soundscape around me I suppose and then being a chorister uh, I fell in love with the Anglican tradition and mostly the renaissance music actually it was the renaissance music that really got me going lots of talus and bird and shepherd and Um, palestrina and victoria and the 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 staple diet of an english chorister i suppose um but i moved away from that a bit when i was a teenager i did i did the sort of typical thing that i think many choristers do which really the opposite side and uh got a guitar and played in a band and got really into um grunge and rock and (laughs) pop you know that were around at the time and really moved away from it but your rebellious state well, I suppose it was really, but it didn't really, I mean, in, in a very sort of clean cut English rebellious way, <laughs> nothing, nothing, too, nothing too over the top. But interestingly, the music, that, the music that really spoke to me on the pop side was also the music that had the best craft behind it. So it was a lot of the music which um, used harmony really well, had the best melodies, had the virtuosic musicians playing, so lots of progressive rock and lots of... Um, I mean even people like Smashing Pumpkins, I was really into the Smashing Pumpkins and I thought what they did was fantastic because the way that they combined the the, the music and put everything together, I felt had real integrity. And so even when I was in, in a in a pop phase, I think I was still subconsciously informed by the classical side. And if you talk to a lot of pop musicians, they will say the same. Um and as well as being a singer, I'm also a music lawyer. And so on, on the music law side, I work with mostly pop songwriters and um, singers and the ones that I'm drawn to the ones that my ears pick out are the ones who I feel have the most musical integrity and I I feel I can help with their careers because I believe in what they're doing so a classical background but then a really balanced pop side as well now so you've mentioned there uh, about uh,
0: being a lawyer so did you you obviously trained as a lawyer but you trained trained as a as a
1: muso as well A little bit. I mean, I was very lucky because I went to university to read law, but I had a choral scholarship at the same time. So I was able to keep the two things going in tandem. And really, I think it all sprang from a conversation I had with my singing teacher when I was at school still. And, um, you know, I said to her, what what should I do? Should I go and read music? Should I try to be a singer or, 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 you know, what's your advice? And she said, Chris, I'm going to say the same to you that I say to every singer. If you can do anything except be a singer, do that. (laughs) And, and I don't think she was being rude. I, what what she meant, I met up with her later, about 10 years later, I said, what did you mean by that? And she said, well, the thing is, if you're supposed to work in music, it will find you. It will become impossible in your life for you not to do it. And if it's meant to be, it, it'll happen. But if it's not meant to be, don't chase it don't waste your time and your energy on a dream that might never happen or on 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 a chosen career that might not be right for you so go and do something else get yourself a backup get yourself a foundation and a qualification and you know maybe even get some money behind you and my plan originally was to study and train and become a lawyer and then do what quite a lot of people do in the city which is sort of take a sabbatical when i was in my early 30s and You know, save up the cash and hopefully go to the college or go to the academy and spend a year just for me singing, knowing that the job was still there for me. And I've had friends who've done that and 50% of the time they go back to their day job and 50% of the time they decide to chuck it in and carry on with the music. But that seemed to me like a more logical way of doing it. So that was my plan. Um, But a year after I'd qualified, and this was about the time I was touring with with various uh, wonderful choirs in London, uh, in fact, we we had a couple of tours, didn't we, at that we point did. in time, so I remember <laughs> remember those times fondly, but, but around that time, I was asked to audition for The King Singers, and the industry found me. It was a question, really, of being approached unexpectedly, and in a funny way, I think the reason that I was offered the job was that I hadn't been to conservatoire. I hadn't had my voice shaped and put into the English conservatoire singery box, which, all the great singers come out of in the end. But to start with, you get put in this box and you get put into a certain framework and a certain way of singing, a wonderful way of singing, but a way of singing which is perhaps quite controlled. And I think the nice thing that the King singers noticed about what I was doing was that I hadn't had that extensive training. So they were able, in a few hours of audition, already to start changing my voice to what they wanted. And I was never going to be an opera soloist. I was never going to be a cantata soloist or oratorio soloist. I was always going to be a, a decent choral singer, I think. And this this was the job for me. This is the job which musically was going to fulfill me the most. And thankfully, it came up at the right time. So I've always been a lawyer. And it was on hiatus for for, for 10 years. And I started doing it again a couple of years ago. But I had the qualification to pick up. And now I, I just consult, so I'm able to work with musicians as and when I choose, but use the industry experience I've got to their benefit. Yeah, it's uh, it's amazing, and so much of what you've
0: just said uh, rings rings truth with so many people. And I, I love what I love what you said about about it finding you. I just I just think that's amazing because I've I've worked in music all my life since I was a kid. I didn't I didn't choose to go into it. It just it came from me, from how a talent or or a passion or whatever it is. It came, it came to me. It was always there from the age of eight, and I've never been out of work since. Thank goodness. Um, but of course, I've tried. You know, I've looked at other things, and and I, I too, I'm. You know, I I went into other things in my. Obviously, I studied at school and and uh, GCSE and stuff, and, and and my parents wanted me to to get a, a, a you know some a secondary interest in case music didn't actually happen for me. It was very important to get a foundation in something, um, and I ended up um, forming a business with my my family uh, in IT, and uh, I was involved in that business actually only only until recently as a director. But the music was always uh, always there and it was always the, the primary thing I did and no matter how hard I tried to do other things the music was always there <laughs> and uh, and I said I've, n- I've never I've never been out of work and I uh, we we've re- we recently sold the family business and I I'm busier than I've ever been in my life with music and I and I love what I do and I was only talking to somebody yesterday about the fact that it, it it doesn't feel like work because it's it's ingrained in me it's what I do it's it's what I live for it's what I breathe and I don't think of it as work it's just it's that's my life that's what I love doing and it sounds very similar to to how it's all happened for you too
1: it is really I think I think um when I was working as a lawyer which I which I really enjoyed in in its own right as a job as well it, it definitely was a job rather than a passion I don't I don't believe many lawyers when they say that they're, they're utterly in love with what they do but it's certainly very very fulfilling and I love the routine of it the one thing that I don't have as a musician is a sense of routine and now that i am I live out of London, having 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 moved out five years ago, and I have three children, and I have a wonderful, strong wife who's at home when I'm touring half the year. Something that I do crave is routine, and it's the idea of getting up in the morning in the same bed, and knowing where I am, and going, going even doing a commute, something as mundane as that, and going to the office, and sometimes I long for that, but then when I am home for extended periods, and I, I go up to London, and I, I do go to the office, and I have meetings, um, I quite like being out on the road again. So it's a bit of, it's a very very balanced life, and you can confuse yourself thinking I'd rather be doing this or I'd rather be doing that. But I think if you, if if you accept that each day is going to be slightly different, and you try to live that, in you know on its own terms, it's fine. I mean, y- yesterday we, we we met at the airport with our management. We then flew out to Italy. We had quite a late drive. I've woken up this morning. I've got meetings most of the day, rehearsal, then concert tonight, and I fly home tomorrow. And that's really a typical, few days really in the life of a. A touring musician, but that's but- exciting, isn't it? I mean, it's. It, I, I love that. I love. I love the fact that there's lots
0: of things going on. I mean, I've got. I've got a crazy day, day t- today, and this week is nuts. I mean, I'm. I'm interviewing you now. I'm then off to uh, a rehearsal for a concert tonight, and I'm singing at the Albert Hall in London uh, for a screening of Independence Day live, the, the movie with a with a uh, live orchestra, with the Royal Philharmonic, uh, and then I'm. I'm working with a choir on Saturday, and then I'm taking them to Angel Studios uh, for a recording session on Sunday. <laughs> And then I'm off to Austria in three, in uh, four weeks time, five weeks time to take them on a tour. So and and I love that. I mean, I love the routine as well. And I find the the way that I get into routine is by keeping myself very, very well organised, very efficient, very productive. I kind of had the things I do in a day and how I do it. It's just that I slot these things into those into those
1: boxes, if you like. Um, but it is hard, especially when you're travelling a lot. Yeah, I agree with that. You need to be so very, very organized. And, you know, if I ever fall short on that, I really feel it for several days afterwards. It has a knock on effect. And you you do find that you have to you know have demarcations for all of your work time within the Kingsingers. I I'm I'm the sort of a corporate commercial chap as well. So I do a lot of the business management side of things and the financial management. And I, I like that too, because it, it gives me a left brain, right brain balance and I'm sure you find the same with you know all the organizations you're running and the the choirs you're coaching you get the and the singing that you do you get the wonderful artistic creative outlet for work but equally you then get to go home and do the nitty-gritty of organizing everything and (laughs) you know I know you've organized extensive tours in the past and that is that kind of thing which I think does help to keep a mental balance within my within my head but and, you know, I'm far from being perfect with organising everything, but I do try as hard as I can to make sure that I'm always in the right place at the right time and doing what needs to be done. Well, you're clearly doing a good job. And I, I remember those
0: days when you spoke, spoke briefly about, uh, about the tours that we did. I think we were with the – it was either with the English concert with Trevor Pinnacle, it was the Age of Enlightenment. I, I think, think. I think we, might have done, we might have done a bit of both. A bit of both. and we it was, to Lucerne. <laughs> Yeah, I remember Lucerne very well. <laughs> and uh, we were doing some Matthew Passion. Sorry. uh it was great lovely lovely times and lovely tours and the tours yeah, are tours are tiring so tell tell me a little bit about the the king singers and how that sort of evolved and what sort of music you're doing at the moment and you know just just tell tell me a little bit about
1: what's going on with uh, with with the group at the moment i think in the uk a lot of people certainly of a certain age will know of the group will will, will have heard of the group and but many of them will think that we're either not still going or That we're, we're a retro group or we're a thing of the past in many ways and in fact the group's been going very consistently since its foundation in 1968 so we're coming up to the 50th anniversary but whereas in the 1970s and 80s when the group was you know at its height of fame in the uk i suppose and on television on the bbc and on itv most weekends with the decline of the variety show um in the late 80s, early 90s, the group started to look a bit further afield for work, I think. And it was about this time that that it exploded in the States. And the U.S. really remains our biggest market, along with Germany and Asia, China, Japan. So a lot over in the Far East as well. And really, these days, we're doing still in excess of 120 concerts a year, but the vast majority are abroad. So we pop up in the U.K. perhaps a dozen times each season. And the people, the, the diehard... Fans, people in us for a long time will still come and see us and know where we are, but the general population perhaps doesn't see us as being so visible. Um, but yeah, we're, we're still here, we're still doing the same wonderful mix of music that the group's always done. And from its date of conception, the idea really was that people should be entertained and educated a bit with a two-hour concert so if you like renaissance music you'll get some of that but you'll also get a bit of pop music if you come for the close harmony vocal jazz arrangements you'll get those but you'll also get some romantic part songs or some contemporary classical music and the idea is to give a really well-rounded choral experience within two hours and before the king singers nobody had ever really done that um, it sprang from necessity because when the group was asked to do its first concert it simply didn't have two hours worth of music that was just in one genre, just from one era. So they put them all together and it was seen as very maverick and quite daring at the time. But of course, these days with the age of crossover and the age of, you know, um, a huge uh, explosion in in community singing led by the likes of Gareth Malone, but also spearheaded by US TV shows such as Glee and The Sing-Off, and the idea that we all have a voice and we all could and should use it because it's so good for our health i don't think what the king singers do is particularly uh, you know avant garde anymore i think i think everybody's doing it but of course we we were really the first people to exploit it the first people to explore it and to do it and we we're, we're still doing it to this day and the the wonderful thing is that the, many of the younger groups that have sprung out of what the king singers uh, have done have either been taught by us or have acknowledged us as their influences. And so we're part of this very modern a cappella family now, if you like. And whenever we go around the world, uh, you know, h- half the year we're, we're on the road and we meet people who say that they've been inspired or that they started doing what they're doing because of the King Singers. And that's always very humbling and gratifying to know that what you're doing appears to be having an impact on so many people.
0: And how 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 does the group differ from other groups such as you know such as the Swingles for example? How does how does it group? It, how, how does it compare? Not not I don't mean in, in standards or quality, of course, but how does it compare in terms of of what you're delivering and the sort of repertoire you're. you're
1: the basis delivering? of the King Singers was very much rooted in Sir David Wilcox and the Choir of King's College Cambridge, hence the name King Singers. And so it came from a, a very formal English. Um, religious based institution and i think that has always informed the way that we perform we don't use microphones we we'd never consider ourselves to be a vocal jazz group really we we line up still quite formally on stage we use music stands for around half of what we do because that's part of our stagecraft they're almost an an imitation of the choir stalls um, from whence the group sprang i suppose and so using those as props on stage to deliver renaissance music to deliver part songs it, in the way that um either a, a, a cathedral choir would do or the way that um a leader singer might do with with his or her score allows us to retain a sort of formality and a link with the past which most other groups don't don't have I th- um, whether it be the swingles or the real group or many of the big vocal jazz groups take six manhattan transfer of our day wonderful wonderful groups they they use these microphones they don't ever sing from their scores Um, you know I think occasionally they might they they might sing acapella but the, the basis of what they do is is that they they use amplified sound and they create incredible sounds by doing that whereas our niche our pigeonhole is that we rarely if ever use microphones and we rely on an acoustic sound and we take audiences on a journey from Um, chronologically speaking, from very early music all the way through to the pop and the vocal jazz which is how we finish up and we stand in a much more relaxed way and we get rid of the music stands and it's that journey from ancient to modern and from more formal to more relaxed that's always been a hallmark of what what the King's singers have done. So I think I think that it's the the birth of the group in King's College Cambridge and then subtly taking it out but whilst retaining those same elements of formality.
0: Mm. And how technically challenging is it I mean it it must be pretty tricky I mean there are how many of you in the group and 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 sort of how what are your technical challenges on a sort of on a normal day because it you know it's not easy to sing a cappella at the best of times and it's very important to get the you know the blend and the balance and and to bring out the different tones of of sound and um you're a tenor um so so how does how does that are you a tenor or a baritone I can't remember if you you're a baritone so so you're a baritone uh in the group and there are how many singers
1: in the the King singers? So there are six singers in the group. We have two countertenors, one tenor, two baritones, and a bass. And that's a unique lineup uh, that that came about simply because those were the voice parts that wanted to continue singing together after they'd left Kings. But in terms of the technical challenges, uh, I mean, because we're six human beings, we have vocal frailty and at some point in the year, each of us will get a cold or have a bit of a cough. And you just have to develop a technique to sing through that. But in general terms, I think the technical side of the King's Singers is the art of learning how to get round problems, which doesn't sound very glamorous. But you're absolutely right in that if if you're singing together in close harmony, the most important thing is getting that balance and that blend. And we like to think of it conceptually as almost a set of Russian dolls with the bass being the biggest Russian doll. So whatever tone Johnny is using and whatever dynamic he's singing at and whatever kind of color is in his voice, I have to match that exactly. Um, All the way down to the exact vowel sound that he's singing in order that our sounds will complement each other. And by by sitting inside him, I mean that the wider the sound we create, the easier it is to build up those building blocks and to create harmonics. So we we can fill a reasonably large hall with just six voices with no amplification because we're matching our sound exactly. And when you get right to the top, to the top counter tenor, he doesn't need to make an awful lot of sound because with those high frequencies they carry really, 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 really easily and really, really well. But on a daily basis, we have to change the way that our voices work so that we can match that sound exactly. So if I'm singing a really high note, which for me might be a top a top E flat, a top E or an F natural just just above middle C, I have to do that in a very, very light floaty way, which is quite... Difficult for a baritone and not something we'd ordinarily do. Um, you you develop your own sort of king singers technique to get around those problems. And really that's what we test in auditions when we're auditioning somebody. Can that man can he use his voice in a way which fits seamlessly between and sits between the two guys either side of him? Or if he's the bass, can he underpin the sound? And how did,
0: that, how did that start for you? I mean, obviously you, 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 you got the job. You got the job in the King Singers. How did you then just suddenly just step in and do it? I mean, how quickly after you joined was your first performance? Obviously you had a lot of rep to learn and you had to, you know, become part of the King Singers sound. How easy was that for you? How long did it take? I mean, how did, how, what was that process like?
1: It varies from singer to singer. But I mean, in my case, it took probably 12 to 18 months. And the thing that I struggled with the most was actually vocal stamina, because I was used to singing in a very controlled way, uh, in the way that I've been taught to sing by singing teachers for years, and in the way that I sang, you know, with classical ensembles. And suddenly, I was thrust into an arena where I I was being, you know, great demands were being asked of my voice on a daily basis. And I had to flip from chest voice to head voice to one East in the middle and mirror what was happening around me. Um, and like way, because no two performances are quite the same. You have a roadmap of dynamics and you have a roadmap of, temp- map of tempos, but if you're in a different sort of venue, which might have a drier or uh, a wetter acoustic, you have to change the tempo and you have to change the dynamics. And I found that this was happening all around me, very organically. And I was expected just to go with it, like a, almost like a wave crashing on the shore. You just have to go with whatever's happening. And that was eye opening for me because I hadn't sung with a small consort where they've been so um, reactive, in, in a proactive, but also reactive, on a minute by minute basis in whatever performance we had. That must have been pretty scary. It was absolutely terrifying. I mean, my first my first performance was in the Opera House in Bordeaux in February two thousand and four, and I'd been appointed the previous August, so I had yeah, pr- pretty good venue, and I'd had about nine months to get used to it. So you're right, I had I had probably four or five hundred pieces of music to learn, um, half of them from memory, and I had several rehearsals, and I I went shadowing with the group. If you if you have um, if you're joining the group, you go on tour with them and you might shadow for a week or two, which means you, you travel around with them, you stay in hotels with them, you listen to performances and you rehearse. And it was that total immersion experience, which I I think saved me. And But, but then to be honest, at the start of my first term, one rehearsal straight into it, straight out on stage, um, a live radio interview in French in the afternoon, which was wow. terrifying in <laughs> the same way. Um, announcements in French on the first night, which again was pretty scary. Um, but you don't have time to think or time to breathe. You just have to, you know, do what you know you can do. They appoint you because you can do the job. There, there is no such thing as a bad king singer's appointment. Anybody who's been appointed by definition can do it. That's what we tell ourselves, anyway. <laughs> and, and and you learn and you work hard and and you work it out. But yeah, the first the first 12 to 18 months were were terrifying, and my my vocal stamina was tested to the to the limit. What have been what have been your your real highlights?
0: When, how long have you been in the group now? for that First question. How I've long have been you... in, it's nearly 13 years now. Wow, so 13 years. So you must have some really, really amazing highlights. Um, tell me a, a couple of those highlights. And, and also,
1: just tell us, has anything ever gone wrong? Oh, loads of things have gone wrong. I mean, the, I think the secret is it's like, it's like watching a swan go down the river. On the top, it looks incredibly serene <laughs> and perfect, and that's all you see. But you know that under the water, those legs and feet are paddling <laughs> furiously. And that's really what, what I think successful consort singing is about, is projecting to the audience an air of complete calm, and confidence, but behind the scenes, you're you know turning frantically. Uh, in terms of highlights, I mean, I've sung it, I've in some probably the world's finest. It's been incredible. Sydney in the opera house. Um, my favourite probably the concertgebouw in Amsterdam, which is just an incredible yeah, venue. I've performed um, in there as well. The it's Albert Hall place. is yeah. The Albert Hall will always remain very special to me, um, as will the big the big American venues. The Suntory Hall in Tokyo is a fantastic hall. Um, so. But the last concert of last season was beautiful. It was in Monton on the French Riviera, and we were in a square outside a beautiful church, in an elevated position, looking over the sea. And it was just the most beautiful uh, way to end the season uh, in that warm Mediterranean evening. Um, I think the most beautiful places are often not concert halls; they're natural settings. And we're fortunate to sing outside quite a lot, so that's fun. Um, In terms of things that have gone wrong, I can remember the performances collapsing because one of us found something funny, and once one person goes, the entire group goes. Like something someone's wearing on the front row. Or I remember one that there was a terrible occasion where we were singing for um, a group of senior citizens in America. I think that's the best way of describing them. And they were an absolutely wonderful audience, but there was a chap about three rows back on the end who had one of those oxygenator machines that would beep every time the bag went down. And so, about every seven seconds, this bag would go down and go beep, and then refill again. Oh my goodness. The entire two-hour concert. And, you know, as, as a human, you're thinking, gosh, that poor chap, you know, it's wonderful he's coming to a concert and how nice that he's supporting us. But on a sort of professional level, you're thinking, why did they put him on the third row on the end, right in our sightline? And I think this beep was pitched at something really annoying like, you know, A438. So it wasn't quite in any sort of tonality or any kind of note, but a slightly baroque pitch, A natural. And it didn't fit with anything we were doing. And after, you know, you go through the phases of um, acceptance. So at first you're sort of slightly wondering where it comes from. Then you identify the source of the noise and all the time you're singing. And and then you sort of get quite irritated by it. And then you get really angry about it. And then suddenly you, you go beyond that and find it incredibly funny. And I think we all reached the, we're finding this very funny point about the same time. And we couldn't look at each other. And we were getting redder and redder in the face because we were about to start <laughs> laughing. And I think we had to go off stage a couple of times because we were, we, we were just collapsing in, <laughs> in hysterics. And this poor man and this wonderful audience. and But yet it was... In the moment, it was just cutting across, and I'm sure you've experienced that, where something which could be completely mundane in every day suddenly takes on a life of being the funniest thing in the entire world you've ever seen. And it's always when you need to be quiet.
0: It's always Mm. when there's something very sensitive going on, and then you start seeing people's shoulders moving up and down, and you you sort of start sweating, and by that point, you're crying with laughter, you know. (laughs)
1: Yeah. And it's infectious, because once one person starts, that's it. I, I can remember a few years ago doing, doing um Fowl in the Proms. Um, I don't know me, if you were me, involved in I was, I did that as well with uh, Simon Rattle, I think. Conductor. Simon Rattle. Yeah. And because the chorus isn't in Act 2, a few of us went round the corner to have a curry. And so we were in Kensington having a curry, and all of, all of a sudden, one of us got a frantic phone call to say, he's whipped through Act 2 a bit faster <laughs> than we thought. You've got to come back, because Act 3 is about to start, and we're on. So, you know, quickly pay for the curry, dashed back to the Albert Hall, just had time to put our black tie on and went on stage, but no time to go to the bathroom. So you had about a line of eight bases knees frantically jiggling for about three hours of Wagner as we desperately tried to get through this act three having completely (laughs) mid-timed our curry so and you know this was for Simon Rattle so we had to be on top form for this and of course we were on top form the performance was brilliant but it was very uncomfortable it's one of another one of those moments where you can't look at each other otherwise you know you're just going to collapse in laughter and it's you know it's it's these kind of things that what the audience doesn't really know about the performers. uh you know we look very serene but again it's back to the swan isn't it we look very serene but that's Actually, we're not messing around but there's always a backstory somewhere. I
0: know and I, I remember that performance so well because I think just about every professional singer was in it it was a huge chorus and it was Wagner and it was at the proms and it was yeah it was an amazing amazing experience I remember it vividly. I know you're you're, you're off in a hurry now you've got a rush and you're going into meetings and rehearsals today so I just want to thank you so much for your time today and for for all this great advice and, and experience that you've you've shared with us today is there one bit of advice you could uh, give to people out there if they're wanting to get involved in small group a cappella singing um, or that are doing it
1: and and how to be the you know how, how to be your best I think the most important thing about music making is that you need to enjoy it and you need to do it with people that you love and you respect and almost the the best groups that we teach uh, around the world, we, we teach probably 30 to 40 groups a year, are the ones where they know each other and they've known each other for quite a while and they get on really well. I think if you've got that good chemistry and you really enjoy being together, you're gonna make good music together and you're gonna enjoy what you do. Um, but you know, don't think that you have to be a professional to get a lot out of it. You can get something out of music with any friend that, that you want to spend time with and who's got enthusiasm. So you know, I would just urge people to give it a go Try to find, if, if you sing with a choral society, if you sing with a larger ensemble, you know, just put something on the notice board or send something around on Facebook to say, does anybody fancy doing some one, two apart singing? I recommend one, two apart singing to anybody. It's the best way to hear your voice. It's the best way to learn how to listen, to think vertically in a score. So pick a bunch of friends from your choral society or from your larger ensemble. You know, start off with just four of you, soprano, alto, tenor, bass, get together, and just do half an hour of singing. And you know, you okay. never know where it's gonna lead. Or get a ton of you and do Speminalium. Yeah, or get a ton of you and do (laughs) Speminalium, exactly baby steps first <laughs> <laughs> indeed thanks Chris
0: Gabitas thank you so much for your time it's been really a pleasure to have you it's a pleasure thanks Russell well there you have it Chris Gabitas of the King's Singers now you can find out more about the King's Singers uh, on their website www.kingssingers.com and that's two S's in the middle kingssingers.com and if you check out their website you'll also see their schedule um, they're all over the place they're touring the world and uh, it's an amazing show you should really go and check that out out well that's it for today thank you so much for joining me uh, and my guest chris gabitas of the king's singers don't forget to check out the website at www.alifeinmusic.com subscribe to the podcast please go onto itunes and give me a review it will really help me um, to get up the rankings and get to more people to help them be the best they can be until next time goodbye <laughs>